I'm a forester. I've spent my entire career doing genetics of forest trees. I'm a kid who uh, knew very, very long time ago we'd spend his life working on trees. Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. And that was Dr. David Neal, who is, as you've just heard, a forester. I interview many researchers for my stories, and these podcasts are how I present more of what I find out and hear. Today, please let me introduce you to Dr. Neal. He cares about trees, in particular, the redwoods. People use the term redwoods generically. It could be any one of those three. Coast redwood, giant sequoia, and then a tree from China, dawn redwood. Among the many trees David Neal has worked on, also with collaborators, are two of the redwood species, the giant sequoia that grows in the Sierra Mountains and the coast redwood, which grows along the coast in California and Oregon. There's a very unique thing about coast redwood, sequoia sempervirens, is it's a polyploid. It's in fact a hexaploid. Uh, you know, you and I are diploids. We have, you know, two sets. Some things are tetraploid, four. Uh, Coast redwood is very unique among um, conifer taxa. They're all diploids, except for something happened with this coast redwood. It's a hexaploid. And that's one of the motivations, uh, a small non-applied justification for sequencing the genome is to figure out how and when this happened. You know, there are different ways you can get there. You can just, you know, copy yourself and, you know, where there were two, there become four, or you can hybridize with something, right? Um, and angiosperm species do this ubiquitously. That uh, the angiosperm clade of plants is full of polyploids, but on the gymnosperm side, it's very, it's quite rare. Um, and in the specifically the conifers, it's the redwood is actually unique. And, you know, again, you know, what is, what, what does that give this tree? You know, um, it probably doesn't explain why it gets to be 350 feet tall, but again, there, there's something going on there with that tree, all kinds of interesting things. David Neal was up until recently at the University of California, Davis, where he worked on forest trees and forest tree genomics. I'm retired, actually. My official title for UC Davis is uh, Distinguished Professor Emeritus. He is now director of the White Bark Pine Ecosystem Foundation, which is about research related to white bark pine ecosystems and also is about support for restoration and management of these trees. And he is focused on educating the next generation of forest researchers. I'm just enjoying trying to essentially empower the next generation. You know, that's really what I have the most passion for is enabling with contacts that I have, you know, having the experience of doing things to try to mentor uh, young people and, and, and attract them to working on these organisms. You know, as I said, I, I'm a kid who uh, knew very, very long time ago we'd spend his life working on trees and what, what I'll continue doing in the retirement. Empowering others to work on trees involves, for example, knowledge that comes from the genomes and the ecosystems the trees live in. Knowing tree genomes can help to support tree ecosystems research and understand the impact of climate change on these trees. It's David Neal's view that forest trees are a great way to study longevity and adaptation. He may be retired, but as is true for many researchers, retirement just means continuing science in other avenues. David Neal's days are packed with science. It hasn't stopped. I can t tell you about a proposal I've been writing just before this phone call. 
He doesn't stop, indeed. While at UC Davis, one of his big projects on which he collaborated with others was to sequence and assemble genomes of many tree species, including coast redwood and the giant sequoia. That particular project was completed together with colleagues at Johns Hopkins University and other universities and was funded by the nonprofit Save the Redwoods League. Knowing the genome sequence can help to understand these trees better. Sometimes researchers study so-called model organisms, which are considered a model for many other organisms and traits. Historically, in the 18th and 19th centuries, and this is based on writing from University of California biologist Roland Davis, as evolutionary mechanisms were increasingly appreciated, biologists studied nature to work out patterns that help to explain diversity, complexity, and how organisms develop. In the 20th century, genetics emerged and led researchers to shift their focus to genetics. They started with a few model organisms, such as corn in 1900. In the 20th century, genetics emerged and led researchers to shift their focus to genetics. They started with a few model organisms, such as corn in 1900. Other organisms followed mouse, fruit fly, and others. As genomics advanced, geneticists started to work on many more organisms than those models, and they were no longer confined to those models. But it is true that much research has been done with these models and continues to take place on these models. In the 21st century, and this is also from Roland Davis, biologists are going back to studying diversity and complexity in the natural world. In the plant world, Arabidopsis, also called Thalecress, became a model organism, and it's well studied. Forest trees have not been classic model organisms. Here's David Neal. They have never been thought to be models for anything, you know, because of the difficulty in working with these organisms. They're long lived, um, you know, they're not easy to make, you know, for genetics to make crosses, self-pollinate, and the conifers specifically have these very large, large genomes, all of which, you know, are sort of the opposite of all the attributes of something like Arabidopsis that has an extremely small genome, uh, can easily be clonally propagated, crosses can be made by graduate students in, you know, two weeks in a greenhouse, all this kind of stuff. These large tree genomes, that was a challenge he wanted to take on. David Neal approached Johns Hopkins University researcher Stephen Salzberg, a computational biologist, about sequencing and assembling these tree genomes. You know, there's a, certainly a challenge for the uh, genome assembly people to assemble a 30 gigabase genome versus a one gigabase genome. You know, when I first called Stephen, uh, about this, he said, well, that sounds interesting, uh, but I don't know if we can do it or not, but we'll try. It was just important to David Neal to make headway on these complicated genomes. I was the, the guy who was you know, sitting around for you know, a, a long time trying to figure out how, to, uh, how we might sequence a conifer genome mm-hmm. uh, of its large size and complexity. It was an economic challenge as well. You know, back in the first generation sequencing era, um, you know, the, the cost of it would have been prohibitive. So that held it up in people's minds. Uh, you know, it was just off the table because of the cost. But second generation sequencing sort of changed that picture a little bit. 
Um, but then came the issue of the complexity, huge amounts of highly repetitive DNA that would then make assembly very, very difficult. But we said, well, we're going to try it anyway. He landed funding in 2010 from USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But I was doing the politicking for many years before that. And, huh. you know, lots of different, you know, the, what, what scientists do, you know, to try to get one of the funding agencies to step up and do it. And finally, the USDA did. Um, it was a fairly bold decision on their part to put up the sum of money that they did at the time. But they did, and we were successful. One aspect that fascinates David Neal about long-lived forest trees is their adaptability. You know, for me and my entire career, that uh, is really, uh, I, I won't say fundamentally unique, but, you know, quite unique about long-lived forest trees is their ability, you know, to adapt to the environment. You know, when animals, when it gets hot in the kitchen, you move. With annual plants, uh, if you don't like it, you reproduce and spin offspring and send them out to the environment uh, where they can find a successful place to live. I'm writing a proposal this afternoon to sequence the genome of bristlecone pine. I don't know if you know this tree, the uh, it's a rare pine tree found in California. They're the oldest living organisms on Earth. The, these trees will live to be, uh, in some cases, 5,000 years old. Wow. Um, so cool. there's some, there must be some fundamental knowledge about longevity uh, and the ability to you know, live through you know, multiple environmental epochs. Some plant biologists think that all you need to do about plants can be found out by studying the model Arabidopsis. You know, I remember having a very contentious argument with uh, at a meeting uh, hosted by uh, some uh, Arabidopsis geneticists about, you know, telling me that um, everything could be learned about adaptation to the environment and plants through Arabidopsis. And I said, you know what, I don't really think so. Um, you know, I think there's something going on in these things that can live for long periods of time in changing in different environments um, that needs yet to be discovered. Of all the things that I think are of uh, profound uh, f uh, fundamental interest, uh, that's, that's foremost in my list and why um, these organisms can serve, back to your point, can serve as models for adaptability and longevity in the certainly in the plant kingdom, that other annual short-lived organisms, uh, I don't think, are going to be uh, as informative. Much funding has gone into Arabidopsis research, and I wondered if Arabidopsis was really more exemplary than forest trees. It's often a financial logic as to which organism is chosen over another as a model system. Here's David Neal. Certainly in the early days, when you know people like Elliot Meyerowitz and others you know, advanced uh, Arabidopsis as a model for the study of plant genetics, you know, just like Drosophila, you know, right. you, you pick one organism and you invest heavily in it, um, and I, I, uh, nothing should be taken away from the knowledge that was uh, accumulated. And going back 20 years, the ability to sequence a genome was non-trivial. And you, uh, it would not have made sense to begin with uh, sequencing a very large genome of some kind just because of the cost and, and complexity. Um, right. So all that made sense 20 years ago. But technology has advanced rapidly to the point where, you know, how much do we really need a model? You know, I, I think the, the, the playing field is very level. Technology leveled the playing field. Um, now let's go out there 
and pick the organism that's going to best answer the biological question that we have in mind, not make one organism try to answer every question. Instead of model organisms, a term that Alejandro Sanchez Alvarado, who directs Stowers Institute, has pointed out to me is one one should not use. Instead, one should say research organism. So efforts in some labs on research organisms, including David Neal's, have been about focusing on the biological organism of his interest, forest trees. I, I, I'm a not a, a question-driven individual as much as an organism. I'm a, I'm a forester. Um, uh, but the, my organism of choice, I think, has a lot to offer in terms of uh, discovery of basic knowledge related to adaptation and longevity that traditionally more advanced system, Arabidopsis, may and so forth, would not provide. David Neal has been the principal investigator on genome projects devoted to the coast redwood and the giant sequoia and has been the principal investigator on the first conifer genome sequenced with funding from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The idea about sequencing and assembling genomes is to make it possible to compare these organisms. Yeah, this is where the field of comparative genomics comes in. You sequence something very long-lived and then you sequence something short-lived and, you know, uh, you look for the differences. You know, what's here or what's not in an organism, not so much coast redwood, that's long-lived, it can be 2,000 years old, but uh, this other organism I was talking about, uh, bristlecone pine that lives to be 5,000 years old, um, is, is sort of a compelling reason to do that genome. So yeah, the, the genome is just a, a necessary resource in biological science these days. You can do things without it as we always did, but if you have one, things go a lot faster and better um, if you have a, a parts list, if you will, of sure. the organism that you're studying. And with that genome and with that parts list, one can venture to study questions such as the impact of climate change. Trees don't have legs, so they can't pick up and leave when climate changes. They need to adapt. Yeah, that's the big driver in a lot that we're doing. We know that these trees are going to have to adapt to a change in climate. And what's it going to take to do it? And you'll see this in our redwood, our giant sequoia. Uh, white bark pine, bristle, you know, all these genomes, that's sort of a driving justification um, is uh, uh, understanding the nature of adaptation under, under a changing climate. And these things can't move. Um, and it takes a while for them to disperse naturally. Sure. Uh, up comes this idea of assisted migration. Uh, people who reforest populations might say, you know, Redwood's going to move north. And what's the genetic composition of trees that uh, would survive in those environments that might not survive in, in more southerly environments? So that, that's, that's the kind of applied information that we're trying to uh, provide uh, resource managers. As the climate changes, trees and the ecosystems to which they belong change too. It's about whether or not redwoods can survive and where. Perhaps they might thrive, say, at a different latitude. And there are many other scientific questions related to climate change. Yeah, that's right. You know, or all kinds of um, not just latitudinal change, but all kinds of ecological complexity. Um, you know, a big thing uh, that we study in a lot of these trees is uh, adaptation to uh, drier environments that, you know, with climate change, the, their moisture may become very limiting for some of these organisms. And some of these trees, some of these genotypes within a species are, are better adapted to drier environments than others. Just like 
you know, the, the genetic variation that exists in human populations. Some of us are going to get cancer and some of us are not. You know, some of us can run fast and some of us can't. That's, you know, there's a genetic component to all of that. Well, we, we're, we're looking for the, those same uh, genetic differences among tree populations and using that information proactively in reforestation restoration programs. Science doesn't simply translate into managing ecosystems all on its own. It takes people who actively help with that translation. For a lot of these genome projects, that USDA one that I mentioned a minute ago, we had a very large, a significant component of that project, one full-time PhD person just doing outreach, conducting workshops, online resources to get it out of just uh, academic referee journal format um, and uh, make make it understood to the people who actually have to implement this knowledge on the ground. And so, yeah, we do that with all of our projects. When speaking with those who will implement policies and approaches, David Neal comes across many different reactions. Oh, like like everything else, it's mixed. You know, some people endorse it mm-hmm. enthusiastically um, that, wow, great, this is interesting. This is a new tool for my toolbox. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there's someone who says, oh, boy, I got to learn something new and do something different. And that's threatening me and my security and my current job. And uh, this is all a bunch of junk and let's not do this. Developing resources is for people who are managing forests and it's for people studying forests and to foster the next generation of forest researchers and forest managers. This is a point David Neal makes with funders. He has also looked to a nonprofit called Save the Redwoods League to try and get funding to help to be able to sequence and assemble the genomes of the coast redwood and the giant sequoia. You point to a very important point that I make with the uh, funders often is that, hey, we've got to develop these modern resources so that we can attract good young people to working on them because they have their own practical needs. They've got to, you know, get a degree, they've got to publish, they got to get employed, they got kids to feed. And if you if you can see a path to doing that on a rabbitopsis, even though you would love to work on redwood because you walked among those trees and they're a lot more interesting to you. Um, and I see this all the time. Young students will have to choose the practical path that they can see, you know, uh, an easier way forward in terms of publication and then all the downstream things that, you know, uh, you gain from that versus working on something that's maybe a little bit higher risk uh, scientifically. So that was a justification that I used um, with uh, this Redwood project was, sun- was funded by a nonprofit organization in California called Save the Redwoods League. That was an argument I made to them. I said, listen, we got tons of young people here in California who would love to work on this organism, but they're not because they don't have the tools. And if you can raise the money, uh, I can get I can build the tools and they will come. And when he talks about tools, he is including genomic information. A well-assembled, well-annotated genome, um, (laughs) you know, has become uh, an essential tool in biological science, I think. He hunted high and low for funding and possibilities and kept discussing, for example, with Save the Redwoods League. It wasn't even a request for proposals. It was all just a discussion. And they surprised me one day and called me up and said, "Okay, yeah, we got the money. Let's go. Redwoods are majestic trees. I personally have never seen one in real life, but the photos are astonishing. And so is the history of these trees. 
95% of the old growth redwood trees were cut down. Wait, uh, hold on, nine, five? Correct. Oh, uh, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you know, um, people are living in very beautiful homes in San Francisco, voting on very progressive platforms. Um, but in fact, their home was built on the legacy of those trees. So now, it, it, yeah, the, Save the Redwoods League, their mission was to preserve the remaining old growth trees that were left. Ah. Um, but that mission is largely complete. You know, whatever uh, old growth trees are left are now more or less protected. So they transitioned to a, a restoration mission, trying to restore stands of trees that were cut over back to their more ancestral state. And that was the justification for bringing in the Genome Project, is to provide the community uh, scientists, managers, whatever, the modern resource to do that. So that's what we set out to deliver. With the funding in hand, the scientists could set out and get the genomes of these trees sequenced and then begin to analyze what makes them special. And here is something you heard at the beginning of this podcast, which you might hear differently now that you heard a bit about redwoods and about David Neal. I'm a forester. I've spent my entire career doing genetics of forest trees. I'm a kid who knew very, very long time ago who would spend his life working on trees. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's guest was Dr. David Neal, Professor Emeritus of the University of California, Davis. The music in this podcast is Break of Dawn by Anthony Vega, licensed from Artlist.io. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, the University of California, Davis, and Save the Redwoods League didn't pay for this podcast. And nobody paid to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism that I produce in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening.